You're listening to the Seabreeze Church Podcast. Well, good morning. My name is Ethan. I'm the family pastor here, and we are, we're kicking off this series here called Paranormal. Uh, paranormal, this is a word, refers to strange events or phenomena that really can't be explained through a normal scientific understanding. So if something is, uh, if something is, can be explained by science, we call that normal. Is it too weird to be explained by science? Now we're talking about the paranormal. So if I say paranormal and the things that come to your mind are you think of palm reading, astrology, you think of vampires, witches, demons, aliens, Bigfoot, or ghosts, then I think we're synced up and we're talking about the same thing when we mean paranormal. All right, so it's no accident that we're talking about this in the month of October. This is, this is on purpose. Over the past few weeks, it seems that about Half of the homes in my neighborhood have begun to display the paranormal on their lawns, and I'm sure that your neighborhood is the same way, and there's a huge range to how that shows up on my neighbor's lawns. It, it ranges everywhere from fun to kind of freaky. So you've got everything from this kind of Casper, the friendly ghost type creature, just, just kind of want to give him a little hug, you know. Um, everything from that to kids, cover your eyes, don't ask why, just do it, cover your eyes. Um, Everyone has that house in their neighborhood, the one that you don't want to drive past, and some of you probably live in that house. Um, (laughs) The paranormal, it's not just something that shows up in October. This is not just a seasonal thing. It definitely spikes in October, but it's not just an October thing. As a culture, we're, we're increasingly fascinated with the paranormal. We're drawn to things, things like communicating with the dead, things like haunted places, or maybe finding some kind of mystical insight into the future. And the media, they're they're tuned into this. The media is tuned into the thrill that accompanies the spooky or the forbidden or the unknown. And so they're constantly shoveling out paranormal shows and movies like Chicken Feed, just knowing we're going to rush in and gobble it all up as soon as they do. Uh, NBC, they have Ghost Hunters, right? NBC has Ghost Hunters. Netflix, of course, has Stranger Things. CBS has the comedy Ghosts. My wife and I binged it in about three days. It was pretty good. Um, And then, of course, there's this tidal wave of horror movies that's always being shoveled out. We're always producing more and more new horror movies kind of with these paranormal themes to them. Uh, But the influence of the paranormal actually runs much deeper in our culture than just the things that we choose to display in our lawns or the things that we choose to entertain us in our evenings. A 2021 study by one poll showed that 63% of Americans believe in the paranormal of some form. And I did the math on that. It turns out 63% is more than half. So more than half of people (laughs) believing in the paranormal of some form. And this is on the rise. Included in that is 44% who claim to have had some sort of personal experience with the paranormal. So I don't just believe in it now. Now I think I've had some sort of actual personal experience experience with the paranormal. And these beliefs, they're on the rise. They're not stagnant. They're not declining. These beliefs are on the rise. And interestingly, there seems to be an inverse correlation between, uh, inverse relationship between belief in the paranormal and belief in God. So what do I mean by that? By that I mean that, in other words, our society, the less that we go to church and the less we say we believe in God, 
the more we say that we believe in ghosts or the paranormal. Joseph Baker, author of the book American Secularism, he wrote, people are outside of organized religions, but they still have this supernatural interest. Thomas Mowen, sociologist at Bowling Green University, he observed, atheists actually tend to report higher belief in the paranormal than religious folks. He went on to say, people are looking to other things or non-traditional things to answer life's big questions that don't necessarily include religion. And then James Emery White, he probably put it the most succinctly. He simply said, God is out, ghosts are in. So our society, we actually hold kind of these conflicting beliefs. They don't really go well together. On one hand, we say there's no God. Nature is all that exists, all that ever has existed. So on one hand, we say that. On the other hand, society actually longs for supernatural experiences or supernatural beliefs. And so with God really not being an option, we see people increasingly drawn toward and gravitating toward the paranormal. So what about us? Where does that leave us? Well, I'm going to go ahead and assume today that if you're here, you probably believe in God, or at least you're, you're interested, you're investigating belief in God. And by definition, to believe in God is to believe in the supernatural. To believe in God is to reject the idea that nature is all that is, all that ever was, and to believe in God, it's actually a rational and a very reasonable thing. However, to have an accurate picture of the spiritual world, we actually need further insight from God's word. We can't just sit there and think really hard and get insight and map out what the spiritual world is like. We rely on God's word to get insight if we want to have any any knowledge of what the spiritual world is actually like. And so today, to give context for the rest of this series, that's what we're going to do. We're going to explore the Bible, see what it says about the supernatural world, and this is going to be our basis for understanding the paranormal, both today and then in the several weeks to follow. So we're going to start, let's start by looking at four types of spiritual beings. Four types of spiritual beings. We're going to begin with the most obvious, and that is God. Now, if you were to ask me to describe to you my, my wife or my kids or one of my close friends, I could go on forever. I could tell you a lot about these people that are really close to me. I'm sure that you could do the same thing with close family, with close friends. But how would you describe God to somebody? If somebody said, tell me what God is like, how would you describe God to a friend? That's kind of an overwhelming thought. Even just getting started is overwhelming. But the Bible tells us a lot about God. It tells us a whole lot about God. It describes him as good, merciful, just, truthful, eternal, wise, just to name a few of the things that the Bible describes about God. Uh, for our purposes today, though, what we're going to do is we're going to limit ourselves to three truths, these three attributes, three truths about God. The first one is that God is all-powerful. God's all-powerful. The very first sentence in the Bible speaks to this. Genesis 1-1 says, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now, we create too, don't we? We create things, but God creates at a whole different level. Uh, at our best, we create things like the Mona Lisa, we create skyscrapers, helicopters, some pretty amazing things that we can create. But everything that we create requires a starting point of raw materials. You don't have people out there creating helicopters with no raw materials. You're not creating helicopters or anything out of, out of nothing. God is very different. God's power is so vast that when he created, he created out of nothing. Now think about that. Even just, even just in these first 
words here, these first several words of the Bible. In the beginning, God. From those words, we can learn that there was a beginning, and prior to that beginning, he was there. God was there prior to the beginning. And so, not only did God speak lizards, giant sequoias, and the Milky Way into existence, but time and space, these are his original concepts. So we serve a powerful God. God is all-powerful. God is also all-knowing. There's no detail that escapes his notice. His hard drive never fills up. Having created, he isn't now distracted. He's not preoccupied. He's not scrambling to keep up. He didn't make creation. Now he's got sticky notes all over the place trying to keep up with the things that he made so that he can manage it all. He's intimately aware and he's active of the unfolding details of all of his creation. And this this knowledge that he has, it includes everything. It includes everything in the past, the present, and the future. It includes the number of hairs on your head, whether that number is holding steady or slightly in decline like mine. <laughs> he knows. He knows the year-over-year decrease. Uh, he knows everything. He knows, he knows even our secret thoughts. He knows our heart. Psalm 139 speaks to this. It says, You have searched me, Lord, and you know me. You know when I sit down, when I rise. He says, You perceive my thoughts from afar. You discern my going out, my lying down. You're familiar with all my ways. Before a word is on my tongue, you know it completely. So God is all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's also all-present. Something I've noticed about myself is that I cannot be in two places at once. And you may have noticed the same thing about yourself. Being in one spot necessarily disqualifies me from being in every other spot. And it's not like that with God. God's not limited to one place at one time. Psalm 139 it, um, it also, it goes on, it speaks to that God is present everywhere. But his presence everywhere, it's not just, um, it's not just like air is everywhere. You can't get away from air. Or it's not just like some kind of energy. It doesn't mean that God is, is everything and is a part of everything, so you can't get away from his presence. His presence isn't like air or energy. His presence is a personal presence. And Psalm 139 goes on to speak to that. It says, where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you're there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, even there your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. So God's all-powerful. He's all-knowing. He's also all-present in a very personal way. Uh, the next type of spiritual being is the angels. So we're going to talk about angels. It's important to know that when we're talking about angels, we're not talking about little gods or, or anything like that. We're not talking about our dead ancestors. People don't get, die and then eventually become angels. Instead, angels, these are completely separate beings. They're completely separate created beings, created by God. And because they're created, because they're not God, they're limited. So angels are powerful, but they're not all-powerful. They're knowing, but they're not all-knowing. They may move quickly, I suppose, but they can't be in two places at once. So the same angel can't serve God in Orange County, California, and Orange County, Florida at the same time. He has to be in one place or the other. But what, then what are they actually like? What, what are angels like? We see a little glimpse of what God is like. What are angels like? There's a lot of misconceptions about this one. Uh, a lot of false ideas about what an angel is like. And this is nothing new. That's kind of always been the case uh, this is a painting here. This is the Raphael's Sistine Madonna. This was painted in 1513, so it's over 500 years old now. Uh, the original was stood at nine feet tall. I think it's a really beautiful painting. But if you check this out, you'll notice that we've got a couple of angels who make an appearance on this. 
So if we zoom in there at the bottom and take a look at these little angels down there, we see that they're portrayed basically as bored, chunky toddlers. You see that? <laughs> so is this what angels are like? Are they bored, chunky toddlers? Well, when you look at what angels actually do in the Bible, you definitely don't get a picture of bored, and you definitely don't get chunky toddler vibes. Instead, you actually get more of a military vibe. The very first time that an angel is mentioned in the Bible, he's wielding a flaming sword. I've had toddlers recently, and, and I would not give them a flame, and I would not give them a sword, and I definitely would not give them a flaming sword. But that's what we see here, is that an angel, in contrast to this, is wielding a flaming sword. Now, then throughout the Old Testament, angels commonly show up as military messengers. They show up maybe to turn the tide in a significant battle or to help God's people in a battle. And sometimes this is a spiritual battle, but really, more often than not, this is a physical battle that angels show up, and they, they're there to turn the tide or bring some sort of power to the situation. And then on top of that, in true military fashion, there appears to be real organization, rank, and order, and discipline among angels. And so it turns out that angels have more in common with Navy SEALs than they do with chunky toddlers. That's helpful for us as we think about them. Uh, the purpose of angels in the Bible seems to be twofold, two things going on. One is they worship God, and the other thing that they do is they serve God. One of the key ways that angels serve God is by ministering to us, which is kind of amazing in and of itself right there. They minister us by helping us and by protecting us. And so this kind of raises the question, are angels, um, do we have guardian angels? Is it you know, one person, one angel watching out over them? Is that, is that idea true? Well, maybe. Uh, the Bible doesn't speak clearly to whether or not that's the case, but I think a helpful way of looking at it is thinking of it as, you know, maybe, maybe angels are playing man-to-man -man defense, maybe it's one-on-one, -on -one, or maybe it's a zone defense that they're playing, but really that's not the important thing. The important thing is that God is the one running the schemes and dialing up the plays. He's the one in charge, and he's doing what he knows to be best. And so that's comforting to us. That's a good thing for us to know. We're not trusting in angels. We're actually trusting in the God who directs the angels for our good, for our help. A final thing to note about angels is that they are moral beings. They're moral beings. That means that they can choose to obey or disobey. They can choose to serve or not serve. They can choose to worship or to rebel. They're made to serve and worship. They don't have to do that. They have a choice in the matter. They have a say. And this actually leads us then to the third type of spiritual being, and that is Satan and demons. So what's the, what's the origin of Satan and demons? Where do they come from? Well, just to put it real simply and to kind of summarize it, Satan was a powerful angel who led a significant number of other angels to rebel against God. That's where they came from. The angels who followed him in the Bible, they're known as demons. So we have Satan, a powerful angel, rebelling against God, leading a significant, another, a significant number of other angels against God. And that's where we have the angels, or Satan and the demons. And so while we don't know all of the details of the drama that unfolded, we do have some insight into it. And we can know that at the heart of this rebellion was pride. That's what was going on at the heart. Isaiah 14 talks about this. It says, How you have fallen from heaven, morning star, son of, son of the dawn, you have been cast down to the earth, you who once laid low the nations. You said in your heart, I will ascend to the heavens. I will raise my throne above the stars. I will sit enthroned on the mount of assembly on the utmost heights of Mount Zaphon. 
I will ascend above the tops of the clouds. I will make myself like the most high. But you are brought down to the realm of the dead, to the depths of the pit. So when we speak of Satan, when we speak of demons, we're speaking of angels who aspired to make themselves like the most high God, like we read here. And so while they still retain some of their similarities with angels, the key difference, the pivotal difference is that while angels serve and worship God, demons oppose God. They oppose him in every way. They're cut off from God because of their rebellion, and now they have nothing to lose. They're cut off. They have nothing to lose. This makes them dangerous. This makes them the equivalent of spiritual terrorists. That's what we're talking about, spiritual terrorists who actively undermine the work and the worship of God. So in this way, demons are very different than angels, but there are some key similarities. One of those is that, like angels, demons are also limited. So this means they're not all-knowing. They don't know the future. However, they do have a high degree of intelligence. They're highly intelligent, they're keen observers, and they have access to vast amounts of information but they're not all-knowing. They're also not all-present. They can only be in one place at one time. However, like angels, they are numerous and they are organized, and they actually carry out the will of their leader. And so, while it seems unlikely that Satan himself would show up in a single given place, it's safe to assume that his demonic network has a very thorough geographic coverage. So when we speak of Satan tempting an individual or something like that, generally what we're doing is we're referring to Satan's demonic representation. But they're not all present. They're also not all powerful. So they're not an even match for God. This is a common idea that we kind of have God and we have Satan, and they're an even match, these opposing forces. But this is not Star Wars. This is not Star Wars, and this is not the light side versus the dark side that are similar but opposing forces in a contested battle with an outcome that's unknown. That's not the case. Jesus is not Luke Skywalker, and Satan is not Darth Vader. Instead, we're talking about a God who is infinitely more powerful than Satan. It's not kind of even. Satan's power is nothing compared to God's. However, his power is very real. And that's something we need to zero in on. His power is very real. Ephesians 2, 1 through 2 says, And you were dead in your trespasses and sins in, what, in which you once walked, following the course of this world. And then it says of Satan, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. So here we see Satan referred to as the prince of the power of the air. Elsewhere, when Jesus is talking about him, he refers to him as the prince of this world or the ruler of this world. And you don't get a title from Jesus like ruler of this world without having a significant amount of power, without having a significant amount of influence in the world. So what else does the Bible tell us about this prince of the power of the air? It actually tells us quite a bit. So we're going to look at a few things. Um, But we'll see that as is often the case, what we find in the Bible doesn't quite square with what we find in culture on the topic of Satan and demons. When Satan or demons, they're depicted in media, it's usually in kind of a, a red suit, maybe some horns. Um, And they're usually representing the bad, but also the kind of fun side. And so I think for me, my favorite all-time example of this in the media is uh, from The Emperor's New Groove, where Kronk, he's got this moral decision to make. And let's uh, let's watch this clip and see, see how it goes. Trying to lead you down the path of righteousness. 
I'm gonna lead you down the path that rocks. I'll come off it. You'll come off it. You. 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 You infinity. Ah. Listen up, big guy. I got three good reasons why you should just walk away. Number one. Look at that guy. He's got that sissy stringy music thing. We've been through this. It's a harp. And you know it. All right. That's a harp. And that's a dress. Robe. Reason number two. Look what I can do. <laughs> what? What does that have to do with it? No, no. He's got a point. Listen, you guys. You're sort of confusing me, so, uh, be gone. Uh, or, uh, you know, however I get rid of you guys. That'll work. So, sadly, this is probably one of my top five favorite movies. <laughs> I love that line at the beginning where he says, I'm trying to lead you down the path that rocks. Is that what we're talking about here when we talk about Satan's demons? Are they trying to lead us down the path that rocks? Are they trying to help us have a good time? Are they just kind of a little mischievous, a little bad? Well, not according to Jesus. Uh, according to Jesus, Satan is a murderer. And that's what we read in John 8:44, where Jesus says very simply, he just says he was a murderer from the beginning. So Satan and his demons, they're not out to help you have a good time. They're not out to help you relax or just kind of take it easy. They actually want to murder you. And this really shouldn't be surprising. If you think about it, we're talking about beings who are totally and absolutely opposed to God. They, they, they want suffering and they want death. That is what they're after. But actually physical suffering and, and physical death, these are just a short game in their eyes. They're a means to the real end that they're after. And the real prize that they have their eyes on is eternal death. They want to see people die without a relationship with Jesus and suffer an eternity apart from him. And to achieve that end game, there's really no strategy that's off the table for them. And think about it. Why, why should there be any strategy that they wouldn't consider or that they wouldn't use? Anything at their disposal, they have nothing to lose. Anything at their disposal, they're going to use in order to meet their end game. Chief among their strategies, though, is what Jesus goes on to say, uh, talk about in John chapter 8. He goes on to describe this. He says, he was a murderer from the beginning, not holding to the truth, for there is no truth in him. When he lies, he actually speaks his native language, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So we see that Satan is a murderer. Also, he is a liar. He's the father of lies. When he lies, he's speaking in his native language. And the word Satan, it actually means, it literally means accuser. And he loves to do this. He loves to accuse. He loves to come, bring these false and hostile accusations against us. He also brings them against God. He loves to accuse God of doing wrong. That's one of his chief lies, is that God is doing wrong. So he uses half-truths in order to advance his agenda, and he loves to slough off wrong is right. He loves to slough off bad as good or false as true. And so in this way, we see he's actually the great counterfeiter. He loves to mimic what is true and what is good and pass it off as other than it is. And so we need to not forget that he and his network of demons, they're also actually very well-informed and they're highly intelligent. They have insight into what I want and they have skill in crafting, crafting custom messages that appeal to my appetites. Now, if Amazon knows what I want, and can make clever suggestions, it really shouldn't surprise us that Satan and his cronies can do the exact same thing. So he's a murderer, he's a liar, he's also an opportunist. What do we mean by that? Well, here's a seven, here's a seven word verse from the Bible that I think is actually really helpful and worth memorizing. It says this, Ephesians 4.27, and give no opportunity to the devil. 
So what's going on here? Well, back up to verse 26, and we get a little bit of context. It says, be angry and do not sin. So it's okay to be angry, but in your anger, don't sin. And do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity for the devil. He's an opportunist. He loves to jump in and take advantage of any opportunity that we give him. Now, the other day, my wife and I, we were upset with each other over something really small. Um, it was so, so small, in fact, I actually had to text my wife and say, hey, what was that thing that we got upset with each other that caused all that argument the other day? It turns out it was uh, pumpkins. <laughs> so, yeah, nice fall-themed illustration for you here. We got in a fight over pumpkins. <laughs> uh, very small thing. But Ephesians tells us that in this fight, in this, in this little argument, the anger that sprouted up in this little argument, Satan looks at that and he sees an opportunity. He sees, he sees a window. He sees a chance to get a foothold. He sees an opening there. He sees a chance to actually seize on my sin and drive a wedge in my relationship with God and my relationship with my wife. He is an opportunist. And when we sin, God gives us an opportunity to repent, to clear things up, and to get back on track walking with him. Satan, he looks at that same thing, and he sees an opportunity to set up a beachhead from which to launch more destruction, more devastation in my life, in my marriage. And so when we're looking at Satan, we see that he's a murderer, we see he's a liar, we see he's also an opportunist. He leads this band of fallen angels called demons, and together they wield real power, but they're subject to an all-powerful, all-knowing, all-present God who has armies of angels at his command. That's what we're looking at. But our map of the spiritual world, it's still incomplete. There's one final spiritual being, and that final spiritual being is us, humans. So why do we make the cut? Why do we make the list of spiritual beings? Well, it's nothing that we did. This was actually God's design. Genesis 1.27 says, So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. So God made us in his own image. What this basically means is that God made us like him. He made us to be a representation of him. In doing so, he made us not just body, but he made us spirit. He made us spiritual beings. Now, over the summer, over in the kids' building in the month of June, we did um, a series of lessons where we're looking at the verse out of Proverbs that says, Go to the ant, O sluggard, consider her ways, and be wise. So to help the kids over there on Sundays learn about that, we brought in ant farms. So it was cool. Every class had like a little ant farm in it, and the kids would just gather around it. As we talked about, go to the ant, O sluggard, they'd be looking at the ants over here, and it was, it was really fun. Uh, someone saw that and commented to me and said, man, what an amazing purpose these ants get to have. They get to instruct the eternal beings. And I thought, wow, that's actually, that's actually a really great insight. The observation is that children or humans, unlike everything else that God has made, they have eternal value. Everything else on earth is unlike us. We have an eternal value. So unlike God, humans, though, were created. We, have, we all have a starting point. Mine was 1986. But like God, we all exist for eternity. We have a starting point, but like God, we don't have an ending point. We're going to exist for all of eternity. And this is something that all four of these spiritual beings have in common. Another thing that we share in common with the angels specifically is that we're eternal beings who are created to serve and to worship God. But we also share something in common with Satan and with the demons. And that is that, like them, we've exercised our moral choice 
And instead of deciding to serve and worship God, we've decided to rebel, each one of us. And so where does this leave us? Where does this leave humans? Well, Colossians chapter 2 has some great insight for us on this. It says, And you who were dead in your trespasses, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all our trespasses, trespasses means sins, by canceling the record of our debt that stood against us with its legal demands. He set this aside, nailing it to the cross. He disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. So here's what we see here. We see that we were dead in our trespasses. We were dead in our sin which means that we shared the same consequence that Satan and the demons have. We were cut off from God, and we were destined to spend an eternity apart from God. However, we go on and we see that he made us alive, that he's forgiven all of our sin, forgiven all of our trespasses. And I can't explain why he did this. I don't know why he did this. God chose to offer us much more than we deserve. He chose to offer us forgiveness, and this is an offer that's available to us. It's not available to Satan and the demons. But for some reason, he chose to make this offer available to us. I can't explain it. He canceled our debt. He nailed it to the cross. So he sent Jesus. Jesus took our sin. He suffered. He died on a cross. He took the consequence of our sin, and he paid that consequence. And he offers us new life, a chance to have forgiveness because of his sacrifice. And then it goes on to say that he disarmed rulers and authorities, triumphing over them in him. Now, if Jesus has have saved you from your sins, then he's taken away your guilt, and he's taken away your punishment. In this way, he disarms the demonic hierarchy. Satan's ultimate goal of seeing us die and spend an eternity apart from God, now that's off the table. That's no longer an option for those who trust in Jesus. That, that, that goal is now off the table, and it's never going to be brought back on the table. Romans chapter 8, 39 and 36 speaks to this. It says, For I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present nor future, nor any power, neither height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And notice here that it's Christ Jesus our Lord who secures this love, this love of God for us that cannot be taken away by anything, including angels or demons. So does this mean that now the battle's over? That would be nice, but no. Satan has lost his greatest tool, but he isn't going to roll over and give up. Remember, he hates God. He hates God. He hates the things of God. If God loves something, Satan hates it. And God loves you. So, Satan will continue to wield whatever influence he has to undermine the work of God in your life. So what do we do? Where does that leave us? In the coming weeks, we're going to delve deeper into the spiritual world. We're going to map it out. We're gonna, we've mapped it out. We're going to delve deeper into it. We're going to look more at the relationship between the paranormal and the demonic. We're also going to look at how we navigate a world where the supernatural is real and where not all of it is good. But today, I want to leave you with two guardrails to consider, two things to consider. And these guardrails, they represent boundaries that wise followers of Christ are going to take care to keep between these two things. The first one is that we aren't fearful. We aren't fearful. Now, last year, I was completely unprepared for how scary Halloween can be for kids. Um, with COVID, we kind of did like a smaller Halloween thing and kind of took a year off. And then last year we were back in full force and my kids were totally freaked out. 
as we just walked from house to house, and they came face to face with the themes of gore, with darkness, death, demons, and torture. And I think it's helpful for us to just speak bluntly about this. When we think about these things, of the spiritual beings that we've looked at today, who relishes in these themes? Who loves these themes? Well, it's not God. It's not his angels. Gore, darkness, death, demons, torture. These are things that Satan loves. And so this year, we're taking a different approach. We're still trick-or-treating. Richard's going as a dragon, okay? Um, Margaret, well, Clara's going as a cat. Millie's going as Joan of Arc. And then Margaret, our little one, is going as a flying unicorn, which if you know her, she's a total flying unicorn. So it just, that makes sense. She's a flying unicorn year-round. So we're still going trick-or-treating, but one of the things I'm doing is I'm aiming to be a less naive dad. And how am I going to do that? Two things that I want to do differently this year. Two things. One, I'm planning to show a little more assertiveness about which doors we approach and which ones we don't. There's a certain level of freakiness that I just don't need to expose my children to. So I'll show a little more assertiveness when it comes to what particular houses we're willing to approach this year. Uh, But I'm also taking time, and this is the big thing, I'm taking time to prep my kids. I want them to know that as long as we're in this world, we're going to continue to come into contact, we're going to continue to see things that the prince of this world loves. We're in the world, he's described as the prince of this world, of course we're going to come into contact with these things that he loves. But what I want my kids to walk away with is that we don't need to fear. I want them to know that. And what's my basis for that reassurance? Why Why should they believe me that that's the case? Well, here's my basis. I'll share it with you, and here's what I'm going to tell them. It's from John, 1 John chapter 4, verse 4, where we read this. It says, you are from God, little children. And here, John, he's writing not to little children. He's writing to adults, but at this point, he's old enough that he can call anybody a little child that he wants. And he says to them, you are from God, little children, and you have conquered them. That's the demonic spirits. Because the one who is in you, that's God, is greater than the one who is in the world, which is Satan. So I want my kids to know this. I want them to grasp it. And I want them to know, because this is true, I can look them in the eye and I can say the God that our family serves is greater than the one who relishes in the things that are freaking you out. So that's the first guardrail for each of us as well. Because God is greater, we aren't fearful. We don't operate in fear. We're not fearful, but we also aren't flippant. That's the other guardrail for us. We aren't flippant. Now, when the Titanic struck an iceberg on May 31st, 1911, there's reported to be a surprising calm on the deck in the minutes and the roughly hour that followed. Uh, Passenger Eloise Smith testified before the U.S. Senate. She said, there was no commotion, there was no panic, and no one seemed particularly frightened. And one of the reasons for this overall calm was that the crew deliberately downplayed the danger in order to prevent fear and and a panic. So this well-intentioned effort to downplay this and prevent fear and panic, what it actually ended up doing was contributing in part to the lifeboats of the Titanic, leaving with roughly 450 empty seats. 450 empty seats that could have been filled by some of the 1,500 passengers and crew who ended up going down with the ship. So in that instance, this casual attitude toward danger, it proved to be fatal. Similarly for us as Christians, we don't need to fear Satan. We don't need to panic. It's a good thing to not panic, but we do need to take him seriously. We need to treat him with a certain gravity. Too often we take a casual or even this flippant attitude toward 
Satan. And maybe it's because most of his damage is done behind the scenes, or maybe it's because we actually don't really think he's real. But Jesus thought he was real. Jesus believed he was real, and Jesus taught that he was real, and Jesus took him seriously. So then what does it mean for us to avoid flippancy? Well, it means that we refuse to dabble in sin and darkness. We keep a sharp eye out for Satan's undermining activity. We look for it. We pay attention. And when we think that we spot it, we don't panic and run for the hills. Instead, we ask, is what I'm doing something that God loves? Or is it something that Satan loves? That's a helpful diagnostic question for us. Is what I'm doing something that God loves or something Satan loves? It should at least cause us to wrestle with some things. And if it turns out that we're dabbling with something that Satan loves, well, what we do is we thank God for the insight because he's the one who gave it to us. We pivot accordingly, and then we shift our energy, we shift our attention to the things that God loves, and we keep walking with him. When God sends you a lifeboat, you don't want to linger on deck. You just want to hop in and go. Let's pray. God, first of all, we just want to thank you that you are infinitely more powerful than anything else in all of your creation, God. And uh, just even reading through that Colossians verse, it's, um, it's striking that you would even take this initiative to offer us a lifeline, <clears throat> and that you did it at great cost to yourself by sending Jesus. And God, we thank you that we can read those words, that you have triumphed over the enemy, God. You've disarmed him and triumphed over him. And so, God, we we thank you that we can read those words and that they are true, Father. I pray that you would help us to be people who trust you and who are really attentive to the insight that you give us through through your word. And, um, God, I pray that you would help us to rely on you and as as we navigate a world where there is real darkness and there is real suffering and there is real evil, God. Uh, give, us, give us wisdom, and uh, Father, we thank you so much that we, can pers- that we can walk through this world knowing that Jesus saved us and, um, and paid the price for our sins. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to the Seabreeze Church podcast. For more information about our church, you can visit our website, seabreezechurch.com. Thanks again for listening in, and we hope you'll join us next week for the Seabreeze Church podcast.